Well done. Thank you, choir. Thank you. I was told I only had 20 minutes, so if you don't mind, if we go ahead and get started. If gender can be relative to the secularist, time can be relative to the preacher, is the way I look at it. Luke 23, 34, we know it well. Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The first lady in the United States in the 1980s was sitting at the bedside of her loved one who had nearly died from an assassin's bullet. She had waited forever and ever for him to wake up from surgery, a surgery by which he nearly died in the middle of it until they finally found the bullet and thus saved his life. The second President Reagan opened his eyes, she, she, she grasped him and held tight to him and tears flowing from her eyes. She, she was so glad to see her Ronnie uh, awake and, and doing well in considering the circumstance. She was so happy, at which point he, said, he looked at her in the eyes and said, Nancy, I'm sorry, I forgot to duck. We're looking at the last words of Jesus, but in many ways, it is the first words that someone utters in such a, in a certain circumstance that really tells us the sort of person that they are. For Reagan, it was a demonstration that he was someone who, even in the worst of moments, his sense of humor and calmness really endeared him to the nation. Here, as we, as we open up the Gospel of Luke to see the first of his last seven sayings, we get insight into not just who Jesus is, but what it is that he came to do. Notice, first of all, in this saying, the model that Christ gives us for forgiveness. In short, Jesus practiced what he had preached all those years. Throughout his ministry, Jesus commanded his followers to forgive. In Luke 6, forgive and you will be forgiven. Luke 11, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. In Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Thus, forgiveness for the Christian is not, is, is, is an, isn't just optional. It is an obligation for the believer. And perhaps nothing could free you and I, perhaps more now today, than to extend the grace of forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. As a result, the church ought to be ground zero for the practice of forgiveness. And of course, forgiveness isn't easy for you and I. C.S. Lewis famously said that forgiveness sounds like a lovely idea until we have something to forgive. Yet forgiveness we must do. We live in an age of secular legalism that is all law but lacks grace. And there we worship a Savior who is crucified by an unjust society by a crooked nation and wicked people, and it is precisely to them he extends forgiveness. And this, of course, became the motto of the early church. As one stone and one boulder was thrown upon another upon the first martyr Stephen, what is it that he did? As he fell on his knees, he cried out in Acts 7, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I wonder where he first saw that carried out. But we are making a mistake if we think that we come to the cross looking for simply for a model for how it is that we are living. And not to understand that what Jesus is doing here is proclaiming the, not just the model of forgiveness, but the message of forgiveness. 
At the end of the day, what it is that we have here is the one who can forgive, forgives because he has procured for us forgiveness. It's not just a model. It is the fundamental message of Jesus demonstrated here for us by our Savior. Without the death of Jesus, there is no forgiveness for our sins. Jesus begs the Father to forgive such vile sinners in light of his death. This, by the way, is the theme of this passage. If we had time, we could go back to the beginning of the first 16 verses of Luke of 23, this chapter. And what you'll find is Luke is preparing us for this moment. After all, uh, in at least three times, Jesus is declared to be innocent from the mouth of judges and politicians alike. Pilate stated in verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Later, he added, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you have made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. In fact, if you look at this entire chapter, you will find that the only innocent person here is Christ. The religious elites are guilty of perverting justice. Pilate is guilty of surrendering to the mob. Herod seeks entertainment and not justice. And Barabbas is a murderer and an insurrectionist. Yet it is Christ who suffers for uncommitted guilt while the rest go unpunished. The example of Barabbas is particularly interesting. Jesus, after all, is hanging for a cross that was put together for him. Between Jesus are two thieves. By the way, you'll see that in the two previous verses of this text. And the empty cross has been ready for Barabbas, yet it is Christ who carries it for him. Jesus literally serves as Barabbas' substitute. Thus, in the eyes of law, Barabbas is set to go free, innocent of any and all wrongdoing for the simple fact that there hangs Christ who suffers in his place. This is why theologians refer to Christ's act as penal substitution. He paid the penalty as a substitute for our sins. Behold the Lamb of God, John had said, who takes away the sins of the world. Or as theologians like to put it, you've probably seen the meme on your Facebook and Twitter page. Today, Christ paid a debt he did not owe, for we owe a debt we cannot pay. And this is the message of the cross Jesus in the Lord's Supper says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Paul reminds us in Ephesians, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to his grace. And here in this single verse, Christ points us to the meaning of the cross. Those who come to him will find forgiveness for their sins. And our sins and your sins and my sins all have have cost God his son. Yet his love is so great. His grace is so deep. He is willing to take and bear the suffering in our place. If we miss this fundamental message of the cross, we have missed the whole point of this entire weekend. One of the interesting things I like to think about is, did God answer Jesus' prayer? This is, after all, a prayer. Of the seven saints, a good chunk of them were prayers. Did God answer his prayers? You can look at the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, we we learn that 3,000 predominantly Jews are saved on the day of Pentecost. Chapter 4, another 5,000 are saved. In chapter 6, we find that the church increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number of the priests were becoming saved. 
But we can only speculate if those who are guilty with carrying nails in their pockets by which they can execute a Jewish carpenter are the ones who repented or not. But I do know of at least one person in whom God answered this prayer for. And I'll ruin someone else's sermon here. What is it that the thief on the cross asked? Remember me in paradise. What is it that Jesus said? Today you will be with me. That is the good news of grace. In 1829, a man by the name of George Wilson robbed a mail carrier and then proceeded to execute him. He was sentenced to die by the judge, but because of connections, he was pardoned by the president of the United States. When George Wilson's lawyer came to him delivering the good news that you have been pardoned, Mr. Wilson, to the surprise of everyone, refused to accept it. The case was so surprising and so radical that his case had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. You can read the case to this day. And the question came down to this. If the president of the United States declares you to be pardoned, aren't you? So too, if the creator of the universe, whom we have wronged and sinned against, if by faith he declares you forgiven, aren't you? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to bless us this